Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes.com. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, kind of a crazy story to tell. I, I almost died uh, on Friday. So so that that's what my doctor said anyway. So or he, he was certainly concerned about it. And uh, he was amazing. He's, he's the star of this story. Uh, of course, God is always the star of every story. But um, but anyway, I, I want to tell you what what happened to me. But um, but let me let me sort of introduce it by by talking about the parsha first, um, because you'll you'll see the connection. One will lead into the other. So we just had parshas lech lecha, and that's the really the 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 full introduction of of Avraham Avinu, the first Jew. And when the story begins, when the parsha begins of lech lecha. We're really meeting Avraham at the age of 75, which is amazing. There are a lot of uh, Midrashim um, stories about, just amazing stories, really, about uh, Avraham growing up and everything like that. And, and they're collected in the, in, in, in the Torah, meaning the sort of the umbrella term for Torah, um, the Midrashim and things like that, but not in the five books itself. The, the five books... Um, uh, begin with him at age 75 being told to go to Israel. And the one question is, why are these stories are so amazing? Like, I'll tell you just one of my all-time favorite ones, which is, you know, Avraham Avinu was really the one who's telling the whole world there's only one God. So it's especially interesting that his father ran a idol worship shop. He actually made idols, you know, like chiseled them out and things like that, and then sold them. So, so that was Avraham's father. So, so the Medrash says that one day um, his father was going off somewhere, and he told young Avraham. Avraham was a little boy at this time, and he told him to watch after the the idol shop. And um, when when his father returned, all the idols were smashed. Avraham, while his father was gone, had like just taken like a, a like a baseball bat, basically, and like smashed all the idols. Because Abraham knew, even at a young age, he had looked into nature and realized that there was one unifying force behind absolutely everything. And what's so exciting about this idea is that you see that that as science and, and math continue to um, advance, this idea that there's one unifying force behind all of creation is is now being proved and demonstrated in mathematical terms and in scientific terms. Um, you also see it in terms of society, by the way. Um, I, I like to give as an example just Facebook. There's over a billion friends, like around the world now. Now, whether you you know call that an actual friend or not is almost beside the point. But w- what you're seeing is all of the world uniting into one. So the the oneness of God is being revealed on on multiple levels. The fact that this whole coronavirus situation, the fact that that a bat, you know, can have a certain, you know, disorder 
and the entire world is getting it. So we're seeing how linked everything is. And all of this is just a, a reflection of the oneness of God, that just all that exists is God, basically. So, so anyway, um, Abraham looked into the nature and, and discovered this for himself and then broadcast it to the world. And he knew this at a young age. Anyway, he smashes all of his father's idols. His father comes back and says, what happened? You can imagine, like, this was his father's business. His, his son had just destroyed his business. But Avram did one thing that was just remarkable. He took the, this bat that he smashed everything with, and he left one idol intact, the largest idol. And he put this bat in this large idol's hand. And, and Avram explained to his father, well, the idols got into a fight. And the biggest one here destroyed the rest of them. And his father said, what are you talking about? Idols can't speak. Idols can't walk. Idols can't do anything. And then Avram said, if that's the case, then why do you pray to them? And it just, an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Um, So the question is, when you've got Stories like that, wouldn't you want to include that in the Torah, in the five books? Why is the story of Avraham Avinu beginning when he's at age 75, when he's being told to go to Israel? And there are other, many other remarkable stories like that. And the Maharal, I heard from Rabbi, Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, that the, that the Maharal gives an amazing, amazing answer. He says that if these stories had been included in the Torah, then you would think that the reason why God chose Avraham was because Avraham had distinguished himself, or let me rephrase that, that the reason why God had chosen the Jewish people, and Avraham, of course, is the father of the Jewish people, he's the progenitor of the Jewish people, that if, if these stories were included, you would think that it's for these reasons that God chose Avraham and by extension, the Jewish people. But these stories are left out because God chose Avraham just because he loves Avraham. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a love that doesn't have any reason attached to it. And a love that doesn't have any reason attached to it can't be undone. It's just an eternal love. Mystically speaking, we call it the, the Ratzon Elyon, the higher will, that it's just God's higher will. There's no justification, no explanation that's needed. God who created the world chose the Jewish people just because he wanted to choose them. And that's, that's what it is. And now we can list very many merits that the Jewish people have, many amazing things that we've done, saying, Nasev Nishma. At, at Mount Sinai, which is that we will do and we will hear. We, we accepted all of the commandments upon ourselves before we even knew what they were, because we knew that they were coming from God. And that was enough for us. If they're coming from God, then they must be good because God is good. So the answer is yes. Like, you know, I, I always think that you can, you, you know that there's a strong love between two people. If someone says to you, can I ask you a favor? And the other person says yes. Like most people, if you say, can I ask you a favor? They'll say, what is it? 
but you know that you're in a very beautiful, strong love relationship when you say, can I ask you a favor? And the other person says, yes. Right? So that's, that's what, that was our, that is our relationship with God. So there's lots that you can point to, but the idea is that ultimately there is no reason. Just God is just loving us because he loves us. And if you think about it, that that's the, the highest, best, most wonderful love you can ask for. And that's the reason why these stories are not included about Avram Avinu, even though they're remarkable stories, and that it just begins when he's 75, just going to the land of Israel. So, so with that introduction, you know, Lech Lecha, which is the command that God gives Avraham to go to the to go to Israel, is is a fascinating phraseology, and it's really like all of all of our lives. You know, everything it means to be a human being to exist in this world are really contained in those two words, Lech Lecha. How so? Because Lech means like it's from the Hebrew word Holech, which means to move forward, physically move forward. Lecha means unto yourself. So that's like a, that's a journey, but it's a different journey. In other words, it's a it's an it's an it's an in an internal journey through introspection and meditation. So do you see how these two things are going on in this in this amazing parallel construct that you're going forward in in time and in space, but you're also reflecting inward about what am I doing in terms of my life and what is my purpose? And these two things are coexisting. As you move forward into this world, you're increasingly asking yourself, for what? Why? Why am I here? Why is there a world? An amazing thing. Lech lecha. And you know something? Something amazing. We know that if you were to take sort of like a spiritual snapshot of the universe, kind of like a, like a, like an X-ray of like the energies of the universe, you would see that there are ten spherot, these ten ener- these ten different energies, right? Um, and and within each of the sphera exist all the other spherot. So so there are ten spherot. These are sort of like the archetypical spherot, but then each of them exists within each of the spheres. So if you add that up, that actually adds up to a hundred. So if you want to sort of like map the map the universe, like if you want to go from the bottom of the universe to the top of the universe, there are these hundred different levels. You want to hear something amazing? Lech Lecha, this journey that we're talking about is Gematria 100. Right? So so when you when you go forward and the Lech, the walking forward, this is also the root of Halacha right, which is the way, the divine way, the divine pathway of Torah in this world, the mitzvot. So you you go forward, but at the same time, you're bringing yourself with you. And as you do that, you climb all of the steps from the bottom to the top of the universe. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we can do this with the Torah. Okay. So now I'm getting getting closer to telling you about my brush with death. (laughs) Okay. So so the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is, is most famous for saying this. He talks about the, the phrase that they always quote from him is, is living with the times. So what, what does that mean? 
That means if you really want to go, if you really want to know what's going on in the world, go and see what's in the Parsha of the week. Whatever the Torah is talking about that week is what's going on in the world. And this is not like a holy horoscope. That's, that's not how it's working. It, it's actually way deeper than that. See, the whole idea is that, the, I'll tell you, the fundamental pe- mistake people make, right, is, is people do not understand something, which is they think the Torah is a book. The Torah is not a book. The Torah exists in book form, but it's not a book. Let me explain. The Talmud says that the Torah existed before the universe was even created. So that doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating in outer space because there was no time and there was no space. So what does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? So what it means is that, so to speak, it was God's mind, right? The Torah is like God's mind. In fact, the Zohar says that the Torah and God are one. And in a different place, it says that the Torah, God, and the Jewish people are one. So so God, of course, is not limited by anything. God is beyond, 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 beyond. And yet we can, so to speak, think of the Torah in many ways as like God's thoughts, his dreams, his wishes for the world. And God, that existed before God created the world. He had a plan for the world. And that's what we call the Torah before the world was created. And God shaped his plan for the world, his dreams for the world. And out of that, he made a physical universe. So the fabric of reality, everything we see around us, is made out of Torah. It's made out of God's initial dreams and thoughts for the world. Everything is Torah. Now, it happens to be that the Torah also exists in book form. But that's like this massive condensation of this light. It's almost like the the codes, like if if you were to have a, you know, like this complex piece of software or something like that, and then you had to write down the, the computer codes of everything. That's almost like the letters of the Torah as it appears in the book. But the the, 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 the Torah itself is much larger. It's the world itself. Okay. So, so, in each Parsha, the energy of what's going on in the world is radiating down into that Parsha of the week. That's what it is. So, so the divine energies of what's going on in the world that week can be found in the Parsha of the week. That's how to think about it. It's, it's grander than just a correlation between the book and your life. It's the entire energies of the universe and your life, Right? And it can be detected through the Parsha itself. So this is talking about, this Parsha is talking about walking. Okay, so, so, so I had a problem while I was walking. <laughs> okay, so now we'll get to my story here. It all had to do with walking. So there it is, right in the Parsha. Okay. And um, so... I've been going to the mikveh lately in the Pacific Ocean, um, just because, you know, until we kind of solve this whole COVID situation, um, you know, it seems like that's, the, it seemed to me like that was the safest way to do it. And I've been doing it for close to a couple of months now. 
and um, and I've really been enjoying the experience. Uh, although sometimes the mikvah is cold, and meaning the ocean's cold, and sometimes mikvahs are also cold. You know, I've had so many crazy experiences over the years at the mikvah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the first time, uh, Lakavit Reb Shlomo's um, yard site, his uh, yard site is coming up, his 26th yard site. Uh, that is uh, the 16th of Cheshvan, which um, I believe is tonight. Um, so, and there are all sorts of programs, by the way. The Happy Minion is having an amazing program with with a tremendous list of guests. Please uh, tune into that. Um, just uh, just an all star cast, all the top musicians in the world, actually. So so really be a part of that. Um, and I'll say a few words, God willing. But but anyway, uh, it was around the time when I, I had first started keeping Shabbos and. I went to the, the Karlovach Shul on, on, on 79th Street. And, you know, I was on time to get there. It was, you know, for, for Mincha, Erev Shabbos. But, you know, I, I was sort of keeping young Israel time, you know, and they were keeping Reb Shlomo time. So when I walked in, there was there's no one in the building. Okay, so I'm sitting alone. I remember it was dark. I didn't even know where the lights were. So I'm sitting alone in the dark shul, which is, you know, kind of a, it's a shtibel. It's a smaller shul. And I, I hear some someone coming down the the stairwell, and it's it's Reb Shlomo, and he pokes his head into the shul to see if anyone's there, and I'm sitting by myself, and he said hi, and then he told me he says, he said uh, he said I'm going to the mikvah. He said he and I, I remember these were exact his exact words. He said to me, "Are you into the mikvah or not so much?" Right, and I, I had been wanting to go. I had never gone to the mikvah before in my life. I had been wanting to go. I said, I, I want to go, but I, I don't know how. I've been wanting to go. He said, Here, come with me. So the first time I ever went to the mikvah, Reb, Reb Shlomo took me, and uh, I remember it very well. We were we were walking together, and then we got to the corner of 79th and Broadway, and there was a a homeless person there, and. You know, Reb Shlomo is unbelievable with homeless people. He just, I mean, the stories are legend and go on and on and on and on. Anyway, he stopped and he, he was talking with the person and he gave the money. And um, and then we walked on and he turned to me and he said, you know, it says in the Gomorrah, you're not allowed to, to pass a poor person without giving them money. And those words like went right into my bones, you know. I said, you know, I, I'm. I got ready for Shabbos. I'm not. I'm not carrying anything. And he said, okay. By the way, just so you know, if you don't have any money and you pass a poor person, you, you, or if you're afraid, if you, if you feel threatened, because sometimes you know there, there's um, mental health issues, and you might feel so you, you might be attacked or something like that. In which case, you have to prioritize that. But let's just say a simple case where you're walking by and let's just say you don't have any money on you. You you can smile at them. This is what the Gomorrah says. And the Gomorrah says even more than that, that the that the smile that you give them actually, like the white of your teeth, nourishes them like milk. So so how so? So I, let me just connect this to uh, something that I I heard in the name of um, Rabbi Shalom Brat, Allah Shalom. And and he used to he used to make this point quite a bit that at Mount Sinai when God said don't kill don't murder 
that the people on the lowest spiritual level heard, don't, don't take another life. The people on a higher spiritual level, when God said, don't kill, they heard, don't embarrass another person, right, publicly, right, which is compared to killing. But listen to this. The people on the highest spiritual level, when they heard, don't kill, heard, don't ignore another person. Don't ignore another person. So, so when you pass someone in the street and maybe, maybe you don't have any money for them, maybe you're not carrying any money, but if you smile at them and you acknowledge them, if you don't ignore them, you're momish giving them life. You're absolutely giving them life. So anyway, I remember another thing on the way to the mikvah that first time that I discussed with Reb Shlomo. I said, I said, Reb Shlomo, you know, it, it seems to me, uh, by the way, he wouldn't let me call him Rip Shlomo. One time I did, and he looked at me with such a strong look right in my eye, and he said, how about you, Shlomo? So, anyway, uh, I said to him, you know, if, if Hashem has promised that he's going to bring Mashiach, and if God exists outside of time, in time and also outside of time, then God sees the future. So if he's promised to bring Mashiach and God also exists outside of time, then God already sees having brought Mashiach. Right? In, in some way, Mashiach is already in the world. So, so Reb Shlomo nodded and he said, yeah. He says, we're just making vessels for him. And I thought that was such an amazing thought. In other words, you know, our tradition is, is that, that, that Mashiach can happen at, at any time, at any moment. And, and there will always be that person alive who God can turn into Mashiach, right? And we have, of course, in, in um, Hilchos Malachim that the Rambam puts together, we have certain laws of who Mashiach can be and cannot be. And, and, and what, what a person has to do in order to, to be Mashiach. So, so if, they list, if they accomplish those things that are listed, then they can do that. So there's always that potential person alive so that it can happen at any moment. But so that, that energy is, is present. But so then what's lacking? We... We have to do those mitzvahs, that, that tshuva, that return, that divine return, that, that unity among the Jewish people to create that vessel to hold that energy. But it, the question isn't, is the energy here? Is the energy not here? The energy is here. But see, here's the crazy thing. We're waiting for God to bring Mashiach, but God is waiting for us. <laughs> God is waiting for us to make the vessels to hold that energy. Okay, so that was one of the things we discussed on the way to the mikveh. Um, I've been into mikvehs that have been so freezing that I thought that I was going to have a heart attack, really, like like actually cardiac arrest and die. The 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 by uh, Rebbe Nachman, if you ever go to Uman, the 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 Baal Shem Tov, so, uh, it's four hours away. You got, you got to hit both of them and. There's a, an amazing story, a miracle story. The Baal Shem Tov wanted to wash his hands and he was 
had a walking stick, but there was no water around. So he plunged the walking stick into the ground and a spring came up. And that spring is still there. And they made a mikvah from the waters of that. And I, I went into that mikvah. And boy, is it cold. I mean, at least as cold as the mikvah of the Ari in Sfat, which is legendarily cold. So I, I've been in like very cold mikvahs. And I'll tell you my favorite cold mikvah Torah, okay? And I, I wish I could tell you the Rebbe who said this. It's, it's so good. He says, what's the difference between an Avera, meaning doing something uh, against the Torah, right? Um, and, and a cold mikvah. He goes, when you, you know, when you pursue your, your, you know, your, ah, your strong desire that maybe is not permitted, right? Here's the sound it makes. Ah, ooh, right? Because you realize, you know, you shouldn't have done it. He says, so, so what's the difference between an Avera, between that and a cold mikvah? So with an Avera, you go, ah, ooh. With a cold mikvah, you go, ooh, ah. <laughs> once, you, once you settle in, you're like, ah, it feels so good. I'm so glad to be here. So, so anyway, let's get back to this near-death story. Um, Manhattan Beach is not so far from Los Angeles. It's about maybe a half an hour drive. And um, there's this place called Dockweiler Beach that I've been going to. And, you know, I've been, like, I kind of got into a routine. I parked pretty much in the exact same spot. And, uh, and then I just kind of walked straight. There's maybe a block long of sand and you get to the water. And then this past Friday, I, like, my spot was taken. So I kind of went, I don't know, maybe 10 yards down. And then I walked straight there to a different spot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And uh, started walking into the water. And, um, and I had had some anxiety that day about going into the ocean because it, it's kind of cold, you know? It's kind of cold when you go in and it's uncomfortable. And then, you know, you kind of get used to it and then it's fine. But there is that kind of uncomfortable moment um, or two or three uh, beforehand. And I was kind of thinking about that, you know, earlier in the day, whatever. And then as I'm walking into the water itself or about to, I had the following thing in mind, which is, I said, you know, any pain that I'm about to experience, uh, Please, God, can you count it against any pleasure that I've had that was not in accordance to Torah? And let me just explain that idea to you, uh, because you don't you don't hear it discussed all that often. And the truth is, is that. It, it really, this practice was really completely uprooted by the Hasidic revolution. So what I'm telling you right now is really more um, Jewish history than, than current Jewish practice. Uh, 
But it does touch on the issue of suffering. And I do want to go into more about the, you know, how we're, at least one way to understand suffering. Um, Suffering as cleansing. Spiritual soul cleansing. And there is this idea to this day um, that suffering cleanses the soul. It's It's an element of it. And now let me tell you this historical idea, which might sound very alien and strange to you. Um, It's a little bit intense, but it's just, you know, just for our general knowledge, it's it's good to know. And again, I, I repeat, we don't do what I'm about to describe to you today anymore and haven't for hundreds of years. Okay, so this is not this is not a practice that that we're to do. But there were very great tzaddikim, and we're not talking about people who were mad or like off. We're talking about holy people. And, and they would do very extreme things. And I'll give you a couple of examples. They would dip their hand in, say, a honey jar, right? And then take their hand and dip it into a beehive so that their hand would be stung multiple times by bees. So that, so that their flesh, in their flesh, would be uprooted any illicit pleasure that they had received. They would roll naked in, in the snow. Again, extremely painful. They would sit on anthills to be bitten by ants. So, so the idea, what is the spiritual idea? Now, again, you have to, you, you, you have to understand this in, in the framework that it, that it was being done. It, it wasn't being done by crazed masochists. There, there was an idea here. And the idea is something that you find in Kashrus, actually, in a, in a very different form, but it's the same principle. And in Hebrew, we call it kabolo kach polto. And the idea is that the way an impurity goes in is the way the impurity should go out. So I'll give you um, a, a, a couple of examples that are still very current in, in, in koshering, in making um, uh, utensils kosher. So for instance, let's say I had a, a pot, a metal pot, and I boiled some non-kosher soup in there, right? I made like a seafood, you know, jumbo, kind of gumbo rather, in there. You know, so there's shrimp and clams and lobster and all sorts of things, and and you're boiling it up in the pot. Okay, so the pot now is 100% not kosher. If you were to put in, uh, if you were to wash out the pot with like, say, cold water, and then put in 100% kosher chicken soup, you know, within the same day, um, you know, there's no mixture at all, but the pot, the walls of the pot itself have absorbed the taste of this non-kosher food, of the shellfish in this example, and it's now going to impart it into the kosher chicken soup so that, so that any food that's now cooked in this non-kosher pot is going to be non-kosher. Okay, so, so how do I, so what do I do? Do I throw out the pot? You don't have to throw out the pot. You can you can make the pot kosher. So since you boiled in the flavor, since you boiled in the flavor, 
into the walls of the pot. What do you do? How do you get it out? So I told you the name of the principle is Kabolo Kachpolta, that as in the way that it got in, that's the way it's going to go out. So if you take this pot and you put it into a larger pot of boiling water and you keep it there for a period of time, then when you take out the pot, all of that taste within the walls of the pot will have left. Okay, so you see that the way the non-kosher taste entered the walls of the pot, it's going to leave the pot in the same way. It entered the pot through boiling. It's going to, excuse me, it's going to leave the pot through boiling. I'll give you another example. Let's say you have a grill, okay, and I'm, I'm grilling non-kosher steak on this grill. Now let's say I want to grill kosher steak on the, on the grill. Well, in the grill itself, in the metal itself, it's absorbed the taste of the non-kosher meat, and now it's going to impart that into the kosher meat, okay? So now, how am I going to kosher the grill? Should I, should I just throw it out? You don't have to throw it out. You can make it kosher. How do I make it kosher? Well, the taste went into the grill through fire. So if I first clean the grill, and you'd have to clean the pot in the previous example as well, you first clean it of any substances, okay? Now, if I turn on a, a blowtorch or if I turn on the, the flames from the, you know, the, the grill itself and I get it red hot, then what's happened is any non-kosher taste that's gone into the metal itself has now purged, right? In the way that it went in is the way it's gone out. So now... On a mystical level, we're applying that same principle to our flesh. Isn't that interesting? That the way, if I experienced pleasure having gone in, if through suffering it goes out, then I'm cleansed. So now, like I said, and there were, they would fast, they would fast from Shabbos to Shabbos, multiple fasts. I mean, all sorts of stuff to, to try to purge the body of, of what it had received illegally. And then basically, we couldn't take it anymore. As a people, we, we couldn't take that approach to serving God anymore. And, you know, the Jewish people were just falling into like a, a, a massive depression. <laughs> you know, like, what, what hope is there for me? What hope is there for me? And, and along comes the Baal Shem Tov and the, all the Rebbes, and they succeeded in uprooting this practice from the Jewish people. Thank God. And, and, and they replaced it with an even more mind-bending idea, which is joy. That you could actually fully attach yourself to God through the act of joy. That you could cleanse yourself through joy. Isn't that amazing? You know, Rebbe Nachman, I heard from Reb Shlomo, something so amazing. Rebbe Nachman said, people are sad because nothing is going right with their lives. But what they don't understand is that, or, or people are sad because everything is going wrong with their lives. But 
But what they don't understand is that everything is going wrong with their lives because they're sad. Let me say that again. People are sad because everything is going wrong with their lives. But they don't understand that everything is going wrong with their lives because they're sad. In other words, happiness itself is is able to get us closer. Okay. So this self-imposed type of um, suffering is 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 just is uh, is not with us anymore. And if you say, you know something, I kind of like the way that sounds. <laughs> That would kind of be cool to do. That's that's Mamish the Yetzahara. It's 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 the evil one leading you down a dark path. So if you hear that voice, just ignore it. It's not coming from the right place. It was something, but it was something for previous generations, and it hasn't been with us for many, many, many generations. For a few hundred years already, this practice hasn't been with us. However, however, the idea of experiencing suffering or all the discomforts that you can have in your life as being a cleansing for your soul, that does still exist. And now let me give you a few examples of that. So I'm talking about something that is the same idea, but but very different, okay? So so this is like, I love this because it's it's this is just classic Jewish thought, okay? The rabbis want to know how much suffering, what's the least amount of suffering a person can do? If suffering is cleansing, right? If suffering as an entity has value as a soul cleanser, right? What is the minimum amount of suffering that can still be called suffering? (laughs) Don't you love that question? Don't you love that they went there? Because you see, Torah is all about defining terms. Like, it's like, okay, I want to be good. You do? I want to be good too. How do you be good? I don't know. Just be good. Okay, now talk to a Jew. How do I be good? Okay, we got <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> Sit down. I'm going to tell you exactly how to be good. Uh, from the moment you wake up <laughs> to the moment you go to bed, I'm going to tell you how to be good. Right? I, I, I can't, you know, you know, I, I love this. If, if a person is physically ill, God should save us. And, and their doctor tells them they can't eat on, on, on uh, Yom Kippur. You know, well, the Torah says you can't eat on Yom Kippur. But sometimes a doctor will tell you, you are physically sick. You need to eat on Yom Kippur. So how do you eat on Yom Kippur? So you don't just eat on Yom Kippur. You have to have a certain quantity of food and you have to space it out a certain number of minutes. Do you know why? Because if you have that small quantity of food and you space it out over a period of time, that eating, according to Jewish law, is not called eating. You see, even we even define what eating is. So you can even be eating and not eating. Because all of the terms are defined. So, so this is great. Let me tell you why it's great. Because human beings are so neurotic. Did I do the right thing? Was, was that right? Was it enough? Was it too much? 
How about if you had a system, a divine system, that told you what the measurements for everything were? You know, if you, in, in Torah, the, 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 the primary thing that we need to do, and this is part and part parcel of keeping the mitzvahs, is to refine your personality. We all have to refine our personalities. And Reb Chaim Vital, who is the top student of the Ari, said that a bad character trait is worse than breaking a mitzvah. Why? Because if you break a mitzvah, that's a one-time event, and you can repair it. But if you have a bad personality quality, that is a fountain of Averas. That, that, that's going to be an ongoing right reservoir of wrongdoing. So that's why it's so important, maybe even more important, to fix our personality traits so that we're not just sort of like, you know, flowing incorrect activities into the world. So what do we call that in Hebrew? We say that a person has to have good midos. Midos means character traits. But do you know what midos really means, literally? Measurements. Isn't that interesting? In other words, what is the proper... Have you ever heard like this? someone say this to you or whatever you say to someone else? Like you say something and they get so upset. Like too upset. You're getting too upset. And you say to them, you're overreacting. See, th- this is mitos. This is measurements. What is the right amount to respond? Right? There's too much. Right? Someone steps out on your foot and you pull out a, a knife. That's an overreaction. Bad mitos. So in other words, understanding what the range of reaction is, like when you can sort of like align your reactions into the proper ranges, that's the path to developing good mitos. Okay. So with that in mind, let's get back to this idea that the rabbis did something amazing. They said, well, we've got this concept called suffering. And we know that it's a soul cleanser. So if that's the case, what is the minimum amount that we can call suffering? Okay, so the first answer that they give, and this is in in the Gomorrah. I'm going to read you the first one. Tzedarachim, page 16b5, if you have the uh, Art Scroll Talmud. So let's say you, you, um, you have a, a garment, right? That you, you have a custom-made garment. Like you, you, you went to have like a, a dress made for you or a suit made for you. And they didn't do a good job. <laughs> it doesn't fit. The first idea is... This is from Revelazer. He says, that's the minimum amount of suffering. Your tailor botched the job, right? So, so Reb Zera objects to this. He goes, no, there's even less suffering than that that can still halakhically be called suffering. And some say this is Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani saying that. 
that if you wanted a drink, like say some wine or something like that, and they made it for you hot when you wanted it to be cold, or they made it for you cold when you wanted it to be hot, that can be called suffering. All right? Then someone says, uh, Mars says, no, no, no. There, suffering could be even less than that. If you put your shirt on inside out, like I do that all the time, right? I wear t-shirts a lot. You know, it's like, ah, it's inside out. That can be called suffering. And then Rava, or some say Rav Chizda, says, no, 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 it can be even less than that. If you put in your hand into your pocket, right? Or into your change purse, right? And you wanted to take out three coins and only two coins came out, that can be called suffering. But interestingly, there's a little PS on that. If you wanted to pull out two coins, but you pulled out three coins, that's not called suffering because it's very easy just to put a coin back. An interesting extra line that the Talmud adds there. You can think about that. But anyway, the idea is, then they end with this very, very interesting note. You ready? If a person goes 40 days in their life without experiencing any pain, they have to worry. That, that pain itself is a way that God is guiding us and correcting us and leading us. And it actually is a demonstration of God's active role in our lives. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think of the opposite, that God, if you give me a pain-free life, that's proof that you love me. Not in Judaism, right? And, you know, by the way, I, I always uh, like to point out that there's no word for religion in Torah. It's either true or it's not true. So we say it's true, obviously. And so what we're describing right now is reality. We're not describing, oh, this is our opinion or this is our approach. We, we're saying this is what's going on. This is truth, right? We say Torah emet. This is actually what's going on. Um, so, so you can actually have this in mind. If you experience pain in your life in, in any form, you can actually have in mind, please, God, count this as, as, as a soul cleansing for me. And so you can actually live with this idea. And, and, and it ties in with something, and I'm going to get back to my story in a second, what I was thinking as I was walking into the water, because I knew it was going to be cold and I knew it was going to be painful. Just for a little bit. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be that big a deal. I don't want to overstate it. But... I had in mind, as I was walking in, this idea of kabolo kach polto, that, you know, as, the, as it comes in, let it go out in the same way. And I thought, any discomfort that I experience, God, please, God, count it as, count it as sort of like upending any, any pleasure I had that I, that I shouldn't have. That's what I, that's what I had in mind. And I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. I don't. Not always like that. <laughs> I don't walk around 
thinking such holy things all the time, but that's what I was thinking. So, so I go into the, I go into the ocean and it was cold. It was a little uncomfortable, not so terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, I go under seven times, right? Making sure that I don't lose complete track of my bathing suit, which I've almost done a couple of times. So, um, anyway, uh, that's what Rip Shlomo told me, that you immerse seven times. It was the custom of the Baal Shem Tov. And, uh, you know, I put my bathing suit back on. I'm, of course, all covered up in the ocean. And as I'm walking back, I step on something. Something very, very sharp. And I was like, oh, oh, that, whew. wow, that hurt. And, you know, and then I keep on walking uh, and I'm still in the water. And uh, I didn't see what it was. I had no idea what it was. And and I'm just kind of like, and it's, you know, the, the tide was, I think they call it a low tide. Um, normally speaking, you know, you have the beach with all the sand. That's the beach we always think of. But then, you know, as you get closer to the water, it becomes flat and dark because all the sand is wet because that's where the water's coming in. Well, the, the, the shore was a little bit unusual uh, this past Friday in that, you know, it's usually not that flat, dark, wet area for so long. Usually, you know, the, the water is like just right beyond that. But this flat flat, wet expanse went for like half a city block. It was unusual. And I was just walking, 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 walking till I got into the water. I think that's maybe has to do with what, what happened to me. Well, it turns out without my realizing it, that I had stepped on what's called a scorpion fish, which is extremely poisonous. And the venom, um, uh, m- my doctor, who I told you is really the hero of this story, um, looked it up in a, a, uh, a, a toxicology um, textbook, right? All about toxins. And he sent me a snapshot of the, of the section. It says that it's the same as, as getting bitten by a cobra snake. Okay. So the, the intensity of the venom is the same as a cobra bite. And I had multiple puncture wounds in my, in, 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 on the bottom of my foot. And if you look at what a scorpion fish looks like, they've got all these spikes. They're covered with spikes. And, and so, so that's, that, that's what I stepped on. And... And as I'm walking out of the water, I was just kind of joking with myself. I was like, well, it wasn't a shark because we're in too shallow water, you know. So I was just kind of just kind of trying to just stay upbeat and all the rest. But it was really starting to hurt, you know. Um, what what hadn't happened yet was that the, the poison hadn't started going into my system big time yet. So as I'm walking, I'm thinking to myself, Boy, I sure hope my foot's not bleeding, because that, that would be a bad sign. And so when I get out of the water, I lift up my foot, and the bottom is covered with blood. And I thought, uh, 
you know. And I had no idea what had happened. I thought maybe I stepped on like a glass bottle or something like that. But but the thing was, it wasn't jagged. I've never been pinched by a crab, but I that's what it felt like, like like a crab bite. Like it, it was like this spike that had gone up into my foot. It had punctured my foot. It had gone inside my foot. Um, there was one guy, like I saw a crowd of people, like, I don't know, about 20 yards away, like like there was like this office party happening or something. And I, I thought maybe I could talk to them. Maybe they could tell me. And I thought, oh, I don't really have the strength to walk all the way over there. And I saw one lone guy like nearby. And I walked up to him and I said, I said, I, you know, I injured myself and I, I can't quite see what it is because it was on the bottom of my foot. I said, could you take a look? And he's, he looked and he said, I kind of don't like looking at blood. Sorry. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you know, like, and I'm walking like, there's like a, like a, a a block or two, like maybe a city block to to my car through the sand. And I'm kind of walking and and now it's really starting to kick in. And I'm like, oh, man, this is really painful. You know, and I saw a couple of guys and I said, is there a first aid stand? And he said, you know, he pointed to like a, a, a guard, like a lifeguard tower, but there's no way I could have gotten there. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was by my car at this point. I couldn't drive there. It was on the beach. And it didn't look like anyone was there anyway. So I, I drive and I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm, my foot is still packed with wet sand, but that wasn't the foot that got, that got uh, stung. In other words, my driving foot so I could drive. But by the time I drove to the exit tower, the, the, the you know, where they, where you pay for parking, like the entrance to the parking lot, and I asked him if there was first aid, and he said no. At that point, I was now in super intense pain. And I was like, I've got to get to a doctor immediately. And so I kind of, I had my Siri, I said, you know, where is where is uh, the closest urgent care? Because I just thought, I don't even know if there's a hospital nearby. I just got to get someplace fast. And... They said it was about a mile away. And I thought, okay, mile's pretty close. I, I, I can do that. And I start driving. And then as I'm driving, I, I call my wife. And I said, listen, I, I got, uh, something happened uh, and, and I'm in a lot of pain. I'm going to go to the urgent care. And she said, no, let's call this doctor um, who goes to the happy minion, right? So... And, and I was like, it's a half an hour drive back, back to the city, back, back to where he would be. I, I, I'm in the wor- literally the worst pain of my life by far. Okay. The worst pain of my life by far right now. And I couldn't even discuss it. I, I just got off the phone. I, I couldn't even discuss it. And and so I'm I'm trying to get to the urgent care place. Uh, two minutes later, the doctor calls me. My wife had called him. And he says, "Don't go to urgent care. Come to me." 
And I said, it's like a half an hour drive. And he said, just come. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And he said, if you feel like you're going to pass out, just pull over to the side of the road. And so I just started driving, right? I got onto the freeway. And I am beside myself with, with pain. I'm screaming in the car. I'm in such pain. Um, earlier in the day, uh, something interesting happened. By the way, uh, let's see if I can pull up the, the uh, exact... Um, the exact uh, social media stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to be on trying to get some of these Torahs out there in the world. So, so if you want to go on Instagram or Facebook, you can, you can, you can find me. And we're kind of posting snippets from these shirim, like ten second or one minute kind of things, and and stuff like that. So, um, sometimes it's it's hard to listen to like a whole. Um, a whole uh, talk, but you can get like a minute or something like that. So th those are on social media. I don't have the exact, uh, but if you do spiritual tools for an outrageous world uh, on on Facebook or Instagram, you'll see, and you can you can you can follow me and and get some of these sent to you. Okay. Anyway, I, I prepared a a, a post I, like from the from the Kutzka Rebbe that 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 I thought was really special. Um, it, it kind of like sums it all up for me, and hopefully I'll be able to say it properly. Um, if I know the darkness is from you, or rather, the darkness is not dark if I know it's from you. That's what the Kutzka Rebbe says. The darkness is not dark if I know it's from you. And to me, that's all of life right there. You know, God is so hidden in this world. The, the Hebrew word for world, by the way, olam, comes from the Hebrew word elam, which means hidden, because God is hidden in this world. But God is good. And, 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 and everything we experience, even suffering, is 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 just for our soul cleansing. It's just for our good. So darkness is not dark if I know it's from you. And I was saying this over in the car, over and over and over and over again. The darkness isn't dark if I know it's from you. And of course, it's a declaration that I do know it's from you. And you are good. And so therefore, this can only be for my good. You're cleaning my soul right now. You're cleansing my soul right now. And that's all I was thinking. And by the time I got off the freeway at National and Overland, if you know where that is, the my hand was starting to tingle. And I knew at that point that the poison was going up my body and 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 my hand was starting to shake a little bit and 
And I thought at that point I could pass out and, and that I, I can't be driving anymore. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and this doctor was so awesome. He left his practice immediately and, um, and he drove like, you know, 10, 15 minutes from his office in his like scrubs and everything like that to find me by the side of the road. And he, he put me in his car and he took my, and he started driving me toward his office and he took my blood pressure and it was something like 248 over 138 or 238 over 148, whatever it is. And he told me afterwards that that, that was stroke level, that he was afraid that I was about to have a stroke. Um, he gave me two pills to like Ativan that to reduce my anxiety or the the blood pressure, but I was beside myself in pain. I can't even tell you. And he knew that it was a toxin because the, the way I described the pain to him was I said that my foot is numb and in horrible pain. <laughs> like the numbness is not stopping the pain. And he understood that the combination between numbness and super intense pain was a sign of um, toxicity, of, of poison. So, so we, got, we got to his office and, and he started like injecting me. He gave me four different injections. Cortisone, which he said was the thing that, that really helped me. Um, but, um, because I guess that stops the swelling, um, but it didn't stop the pain. And, you know, he was such a, he's such a gentle person. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a shot in your arm. I want you to know this is really going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot, but just, just, I have to do it. So he gives me the shot and I wasn't looking. I didn't want to watch him do it. He finishes giving me the shot. I said, did you give me the shot? He said, yeah, I gave you the shot. I was like, oh, okay, good, good. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to have to give you another shot. Now, this one is really going to hurt. It's really, really going to hurt. And I thought, okay, you know, just do whatever you have to do. He says, yeah, because I have to put it into the muscle. So he takes something and it's between my toes. He jams it in and he's jamming it in. And I don't feel anything. And I start laughing hysterically. And I thought, he probably thinks I'm a madman. He's like jamming this needle. Like, like, not, like it's not just like, here's the needle. Here, we just squeeze it. Not, not one of those. It's like jamming a needle into my muscle. And I, I'm laughing hysterically. And I tell him, I, I felt as though I owed him an explanation. I said, I'm laughing so hard because I don't feel it because the other pain is so intense, I can't even feel that. I felt the pressure of it, but not the pain from it. He asked me in the car, I, we were talking in the car, I, I said, you know, they do the pain scale from 1 to 10. I said, I'm at a 14 right now. So, so then, and he's putting ice on my foot because apparently that's one way to treat, you know, the, the effects of the, the poison. 
It's not helping. In fact, it was making it worse. And then he goes and he, he goes into the other office and he checks something and he comes back with a super hot washcloth. And he puts that on the outside of my foot. Now, you have to understand, at this point, I've taken two Ativan, two Tylenol. I've had four injections. Nothing is stopping the pain. He puts a hot washcloth on the top of my foot and my pain goes from here all the way down. Can you imagine? A hot washcloth did what four injections couldn't do? And I looked it up. I did some Googling afterwards. Apparently, the, the, the toxin from the scorpion fish is, is very sensitive to heat and that the heat from the washcloth just breaks down the toxins. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, I'll give you two little things that I learned um, so far. Just if you go in the ocean as you're, you know, I guess before the swimming part, while, while you're walking in the ocean, you're supposed to kind of like um, shuffle on the floor of the ocean, meaning to say you don't pick up your foot and then put down your foot. Not, not a normal type of walking, right? But a shuffling. And, and the reason why you walk that way is because a lot of these fish like stingrays and um, the, the scorpion fish, they're not natural predators, meaning to say that they don't chase after you trying to sting you. It's just if you step on them, then as a defensive measure, they're going to they're gonna get you back, right, to protect themselves. So if you kind of shuffle along the, the, the ocean floor, that sends a signal to them that someone's coming and then they go away. So, so that's a way to avoid getting stung. That's, so that's a, just a good thing to know. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is that um, if you do get stung by one of these fish, that, that cold, that hot water, hot water is, is, is the way to go. And if you can even stick your foot in a bucket of hot water, like for instance, if you don't have access to something else, I don't know where you're going to get the hot water from, but if, if you can do it that way, then, then that's going to really bring down the pain in a, in a big way, in a, in a wonderful way. Um, so, so it was Erev Shabbos, right? And now we were getting into Shabbos and he, he brought me home. And, you know, kind of like hopped into the, I hopped into the, the house and I'm still in my wet bathing suit and, you know, and like basically the first thing I said to, to, to my wife was, please bring down my Shabbos clothes. I just wanted to get into Shabbos, you know. And she brought down tzitzis and a white shirt and my suit and a tie. And I went into the bathroom and and I I got into my Shabbos clothes. And I uh, I instantly I felt so much better. And you know, while he was like sticking all these needles in me, like you know, in between, I daven mincha on the table. And then for a first in my life, I dive and Mariv lying down. 
you know, for Shabbos. And then I was able to sit at the table for Shabbos, you know. I, was, I had my meal and then I went to sleep. And here's the crazy thing. I woke up the next morning feeling fantastic. Not good. Not good. Great. So much so that I had to, I didn't remember that this had happened to me yesterday. I had to remind myself, oh yeah, that happened yesterday. And on a scale of one to 10, the pain scale, I was at, I was at a zero. I couldn't believe it. So I got up and I realized, you know, you know, you know, I agreed with my wife. It wasn't even a question. I'm not going to shul, of course. Right. And, um, you know, that's about a mile walk for me. And so, which means two miles, a mile walk there and a mile walk back. And, you know, I've got this scorpion fish puncture on the bottom of my foot, right? Like, can't walk two miles, right? So I get, I get dressed, you know, I get into my suit and I put on my talus and I, I'm right in the beginning of, of saying bruchas, you know, the morning prayers. And there's a knock at the door. And it's the doctor. He's come to see how I'm doing. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. And I don't know if he was surprised to see me in my suit and tie and towel standing in front of him, you know, early in the morning. It was maybe 8 a.m. And I said to him, I, I feel great. Can I come to shul? And he says, well, if you feel great, sure. And I said, let me check with my wife. And uh, so, so you know, it's, it's important for shalom bias. Shalom bias means that there's peace in the home. And it's such a giant blessing. And it's, it's such a foundational element of, of Jewish life and of Torah life. And, you know, I'll tell you something, believe it or not, of the 613 mitzvahs, a lot of people are surprised when they hear this, divorce is actually one of the 613 mitzvahs. Why, why is divorce a mitzvah? Let me tell you why. Because shalom bias is so important. If you can't have shalom bias in the, in the house, if you can't have peace in the house, then God gives us an alternative for 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 guarding peace. And so for the sake of guarding peace, there's divorce. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's for the sake of peace, because that's just one illustration of, of how foundational peace in the home is. And I heard Reb Shlomo say so beautifully one time that shalom bias, a lot of people think that it's just that I'm not yelling at you and you're not yelling at me. He says, that's not, that's not peace in the home. That's a ceasefire. Okay, what we want is actual peace. Um, when there's peace in the home, it says the Shekhinah, God's presence is in the home, right? In this like almost revealed way. That's, that's how important it is. Um, so, so it has to be guarded. And, and, and you, have to, you have to ask your wife, you have to ask your husband like, is this okay with you? I'm about to do this. Is this okay with you? That it's not, it's not nothing. 
And this is shalom bias in action, right? That's, that's how you guard it. That's how you protect it. And if it's not okay with the other person, well, sometimes that causes a conflict, but then, you know, you, you have to try to work it out. You know, I, I was, a couple was about to get married and I was talking with one of the people and I remember saying this, that, you know, people think in the back of their minds, compromise is where we both win, or at least compromise is where I win. But real compromise is actually where you both lose. <laughs> You're both willing to lose something. That, that's actually what compromise is, you know, in a, in a real kind of here and now way. So, but, but why are we willing to do that? Because we understand that there's something so much greater there that we want to protect. And we understand that whatever my need of the moment is, is not more important than the relationship itself. So, so sometimes we say, well, this is for a spiritual thing. I'm going to shul and that's my relationship with God and my relationship with God is more important. And so that will override whatever you think. But a lot of times that's just arrogance and, and spiritual narcissism at work, really, honestly, and selfishness. Anyway, so I went upstairs, I, I asked my wife, I said, you know, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling like it doesn't hurt at all. I'm feeling great. Can I go to shul? And she said, well, if he's there and he's going to go with you, then yeah, you can go. The most amazing thing, I walked to shul and I walked back. And, and I even spoke in shul. I gave, two, gave a class in the morning and spoke. By the way, the 8.30 class is, is back up and going uh, before, before 9 o'clock davening. Come, come, come. Let's, let's learn again. We're trying to kind of restore, restore everything from this whole long, crazy hiatus that we've been on. So, so we're back in session. I want to see you 8.30 upstairs at the Lighthouse in Robertson at the new Happy Minion location. Okay. So, so anyway, um, I, I, that's, I, that's kind of, it's kind of the end of the story. Um, the darkness is not dark if I know it's from you. The darkness is not dark if I know it's from you. And, um, You know, all there is is God, which means that God is in the darkness. That the darkness doesn't cover God. And if we want to be for real, if we really want to live in this world, if we really want to live this life and actually be part of reality, we've got to get rid of this schizophrenic idea where we compartmentalize God. You know, there, there are kind of two personality types that I've run into over the years that I've discovered. One is the more spiritually inclined, which is any good thing that's happening to me, it's only happening because of God. And the bad stuff, I don't, I don't even know what the bad stuff is. You know what? The bad stuff is also from God. Or you've got this personality trait, which is that, you know what? All the bad things are happening to me because God is out to get me. And the good stuff, well, I'm a smart guy. You know, I work very hard, of course. Good stuff is from me. I do it. 
two, two opposite incorrect approaches, right? Each incorrect in its own way. The good stuff comes from God, and the suffering comes from God. Everything comes from God. But the key to all this is understanding that the suffering is soul cleansing and it's also coming for the good. Because everything that God does is for the good because he loves us to pieces. He loves us to pieces. And as we started off, and maybe we'll end on this note as well. Lech Lecha. The story of Abraham's life starts when he's 75 years old. You don't, he used every second of his life. Miracles were done for him that aren't listed in the five books itself, in the stories of these Parshas themselves. Why does it start at 75? Because as the Maharal says, God doesn't want us to think that he chose Abraham and the Jewish people because of that reason, but just that we should know that God chooses us from a standpoint of unconditional love. And that's what this life is. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. And it doesn't mean that it's pain-free, but it also doesn't mean that there's a contradiction there. They can both exist at once. This world is in an intense place. It, it's intense. It's intense. This stuff goes on. Stuff that, that we don't want to go on, it goes on. But it's all here in order to bring us to a place of perfection where we can work with God to get rid of all these things and to fill all these dark places with light. And when we go through any, any hard time and we can know that God is there, we fill it with light for all time. Okay. Uh, just one more thing that I'd like to add, uh, just as special, special thanks, you know, there's, we really, we really exist in, in kind of two forms in this world. Um, one form is just our, like you and me, like you're you and I'm me, right? But, but then there's this greater form, which is that we're, we're one people and, and, and one family and we share one soul. And of course, the whole world is, we're all God's children as well. But, but we're one family, and, and, and that's also you. In other words, you don't just end where your, the top of your head ends, you know, where the bottom of your feet end. The, you're part of a community. And I experienced the, the, how essential it is to be a member of a community and, and the benefits of being a member of a community. The idea that this doctor, whose name I'm deliberately not mentioning because he asked me not to, by the way, um, you know, a high-end, Harvard-trained, Beverly Hills, private practice, fellowship leading, you know, like top, 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 top doctor in the field driving to pick you up by the side of a road, leaving his practice at a moment's notice, personally putting you in a wheelchair and wheeling you into his office, coming to your house the next morning? I mean, this is unheard of. But this is the result of 
being in a community together. So, so this is, you know, the Torah is giving us the user's manual. It's the user's manual to this world, to this life, and to the worlds beyond, by the way. Um, being a member of a community can save your life as it saved mine. And, and um, I, I just tell you that because a, a lot of times, you know, people feel so, I, you know, I, God's everywhere. I can do it by myself in my house. And you can, but you're not experiencing the fullness of what the vision of this world is and of who you are is, unless you're joining with the rest of who you are. Okay. The distinction that you're making between pain and suffering is fantastic. It's really fantastic, you know, because I, I never would have made that, that, that distinction. Um, that, that, that if you know that the, that the pain is, is coming from a, a place of love and cleansing and, and God, you know, being in, involved in your life and, and, and then, then the result doesn't have to be suffering. In other words, the pain can be real and even continue to exist, but there doesn't have to necessarily be the suffering that goes along with it because the pain can be just like, you know, I wasn't suffering. I, I was in the worst pain of my life, but I wasn't suffering because I was saying the whole time that, you know, that, that, that from the Katskarebi, that, that it's not darkness if I know it's from you, right? The darkness isn't dark if I know it's from you. Over and over again, the darkness isn't dark if I know it's from you. The darkness isn't dark if I know it's from you. And, and I think that that, that was so stopping the suffering. It wasn't stopping the pain, though. The pain was overwhelming. Yeah. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual tools for an outrageous world is now going to be on social media. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.